down in the grip of oppression I fought for my liberty I paid with the blood of my people Freedom has never been free Now my door's always open To dreamers and friends But when I'm attacked I protect and defend Because my name is America And welcome, this is Karen Schoen, and you're listening to The Prism of America's Education, brought to you on the America Out Loud Talk Radio Network, with my wonderful sponsor, the Florida Citizens Alliance, and what the Alliance is doing right now, nothing is more important than what is going on in our schools. And as a former teacher, I'm horrified, I'm mortified, and to think that I'm being forced to pay for this garbage. And that's exactly what it is. We had a team of people from the Alliance that go through the textbooks. And I believe there was about 100 people going through these textbooks. Not one of them would have been acceptable for any grade, anywhere. And they teach absolutely nothing. But you know my opinion. And before we bring on our guests, I just wanted to remind you all that we are going to be starting our boycott. A boycott is something every single American can do, because all you have to do is find a corporation that hates you, which is real easy to do. And you can go to second to and the vote.com. Look up the corporation and it'll give you their rating and they'll even tell you how much they hate you. Why are you giving them your money? Stop doing that. But we're going to take a different approach with Woca-Cola because Woca-Cola and all of the other carbonated drinks, listen to the word folks, carbonated drinks, What's carbonated? Oh, my goodness, that's CO2. Every time you drink one of these poisonous drinks, they're poison. That's what they tell us. CO2 is poison. And it's polluting the planet, and we're destroying the planet by releasing all of this CO2. And yet the drink of choice is filled with carbon dioxide. So, folks, it's time to show them that they, we are not as stupid as they would like us to be, and that we actually do know what carbonated drinks mean, and therefore we're not going to drink them. And I hate to say this, folks, but that might be your beer and your wine as well. But the good news is Nancy and Gavin have a vineyards, and they make a lot of money on their vineyards, but they also expel a lot of CO2. So that's another one to boycott. I'm very serious. And if it makes you feel bad to say boycott, say cancel culture. It means exactly the same thing. Folks, we have a really great show today. And Chris Wright, dear friend and compatriot in our quest to expose communism in all of its form, has agreed to join us today with some of his wonderful speakers from his Speakers Bureau. Chris, thank you so much for joining me today. And I'm going to let you take over because you always teach us so much and we always run out of time. So I'll stop talking. Karen, thanks for having us back. 
before we get to our speaker, I'd like to tell your audience a little bit about the Anti-Communism Action Team. We are an independent grassroots group de dedicated to fighting communism at home and abroad. I'm the founder of ACAT. We're in our ninth year and we have a website. It's at spiderinthefly.com with hyphens between the words, spider hyphen, etc. We have a speaker's bureau like we have the speaker tonight and we're available anywhere free of charge. There are no speaker's fees. We can appear anywhere by video conferencing. And we have a free newsletter, uh, weekly roundup of anti-communism news. And that is uh, totally, this is all totally grassroots. Nobody's trying to make any money at this. So your contact information is never sold or shared. So that's a little bit about us. And tonight we're gonna to get right to our guest, Dr. Andrew Bernstein. He holds a PhD in philosophy and has written uh, many books and articles and has received prestigious teaching awards. He's lectured in England, Holland, Belgium, and many other countries, and also on US campuses like Harvard, Yale, Stanford, University of Chicago. And uh, he is the author of the book, and I'm going to let him tell us about that. Um, and so uh, without further ado, Dr. Andrew Bernstein is going to talk to us tonight about indoctrination in public schools and what we can do about it. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Karen. Um, yeah, I was uh, went to the government schools K through 12 in Brooklyn back in the in the 1960s when they back then they were only poor education. Today, then they're terrible education plus leftist uh, propaganda. So um, we could we could go all the way back to uh, John Dewey and William Hurd Kilpatrick, right around the you know, so-called progressive movement, right around the time of World War One, which is more than a hundred years ago. And their war, they've warred against academic subjects for a century now. And I can see it as, you know, I, my, I, I teach college classes. My students are good kids. They're good American kids. But so many of them struggle just with the mechanics of reading. They struggle, of course, with reading comprehension of college-level material. Many of them can't write a coherent paragraph, much less a college-level essay. And maybe the most shocking thing of all is they don't know the first thing about American history. Uh, you know, I mean, I'll tell you an anecdote here is a, a few years ago right before the uh, pandemic shut us down. I was teaching a logic class and logic is an abstract subject. So I like to bring in examples to illustrate and American history is, is replete with examples. So I figured, I, was, I don't remember the context anymore but I was discussing James Madison. I figured Madison would be pretty safe. Well, it turns out it wasn't so safe. There were 20 students in the class, all of them born and reared in, in, in America and schooled in, in America. I won't say educated, but they were schooled uh, in America. 10 out of 20 never heard of James Madison. They never heard of him. The other 10 knew that he'd been president of the United States, which is a start, but not one out of 20, not one American kid out of 20 in a college level logic class knew that Madison was the lead author of the US Constitution I'm virtually the sole author of the Bill of Rights. It's it, it's if if I hadn't been um, if, if I hadn't seen this this lack this ignorance in American history before, I'd have been I'd have been shocked. As as it was, I was only appalled. I was but I wasn't shocked. This war on academic subjects goes back more than a hundred years. Like I said, to John Dewey, William Hurd Kilpatrick at Columbia University, Columbia University teaches college. Um, first of all, they war on phonics. The reading is the basic cognitive skill. 
And, um, you know, if kids can read well, then the whole world of knowledge is open to them. Phonics is systematic. Phonics is the method to teach reading. You teach kids the sound of the letters, the sound of the combination of letters. And then even in an irregular language like English, 87, roughly 87 percent of the words in the language can be sounded out and the kids become proficient readers. They've, they rejected phonics for a long time now for the whole word method which is a complete and abysmal failure, which is why the kids struggle to read so much. They did away with history more than 100 years ago, named it, you know, brought in some weird hybrid called social studies, which could mean anything to anybody. And in our day means a great deal of leftist propaganda. Uh, they've, they've, since the kids struggle to read, they've completely watered down the, the literature reading list. The kids don't read don't read much at all in, in their English classes and, and don't write papers and so on and so forth. This has been going on for a long time. Not the propaganda part, the anti-academic part. The propaganda part is relatively new. But the anti-academic part, the, the thinking on the part of the progressives was, you know, this early 20th century, that's when IQ tests first came in. And you could IQ test the kids back then. You can't do it today. It's, it's racist today, but it's considered racist. But back then, IQ tests had just come in early 20th century. And so the idea for the progressive educators was you IQ test the kids, you find the brightest. These are the kids who are going to get the full academic program. They'll get math and science and literature and history. And these are the kids who are going to go on to college and they'll, you know, they'll be educated and they're going to be society's future leaders. They will govern in the legislature and in the classroom. The rest of us, the overwhelming bulk of the population, we don't need that much academics. You know, we're going to be bricklayers, plumbers, you know, farmers in the in the rural areas. Well, we need a uh, vocational training, you know, wood shop, metal shop, uh, agricultural uh, classes for the kids in the rural area, home economics for the girls, you know, and practical skills, hygiene, driver's ed, sex ed, things like that. So they they've been warring on academics for a long time. And they've gradually diluted uh, and dumbed down the academic program for most students, uh, you know, as, like, like we see today. Uh, so most of us, the, the key point here is most of us don't need to be strong readers, writers, or, 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 or adept at mathematical calculation. Those are thinking skills. We don't need those kind of thinking skills because what we need is to be good at our jobs and obey the wise rules of the state. Even then, this was a socialist program. It was a top-down status program. The wise rulers, if, for those who know the history of philosophy, this is Plato, you know, the philosopher king. You have the wise rulers govern. The rest of us are good at our jobs and we obey the wise rulers of the state. We all serve the state and everything will be fine. So it's basically socialist, communist uh, mentality. And that's been, that's been, been going on for, for 100 years now. Now the, uh, oh, by the way, I mentioned Dewey, John Dewey, a star in, in Columbia University philosophy department from 1905 to 1930, exerted a very strong influence on Columbia University Teachers College, which was training, which was the preeminent teaching uh, institution in the country. William Hurd Kilpatrick headed it, was Dewey's, pre, was Dewey's uh, leading disciple. Where did these guys go in the 1920s? Where did they pilgrimage to look for the kind of educational system they wanted? It may, it may not be shocking, given what we see today. They, they went to the Soviet Union. They pilgrimaged like devout Muslims go to Mecca. They pilgrimaged to the Soviet Union and came back to the 1920s, when Stalin was in power in the late 20s. 
And they came back with glowing reports about Soviet education. I mean, it just makes your hair stand on it. The Soviets, as the good Marxist communists that they were, they, tra they trained the kids to serve the state. You know, they taught the kids, indoctrinated the kids, your life doesn't belong to you, it belongs to the state. And that's the goal. That was the goal 100 years ago. And it's become more and more nakedly obvious. Over the last 20 years, we've seen academics uh, eviscerated, not just for practical training or vocational skills, but for overt leftist propaganda. Today, the schools don't educate, they indoctrinate. There's endless talk about man-made global warming and how it's gonna destroy the planet. By the way, I heard that uh, Al Gore said recently that he was talking about the boiling oceans. The oceans are gonna boil. And these guys are so out of touch with reality, it would be comical if they didn't have so much power. But you know, man-made global warming is gonna destroy the planet. That's one thing they indoctrinate the kids with. And they very rarely give the evidence on the other side. There's a ton of evidence to show that climate change is completely natural not man-made, and that warming has been official life on Earth, not, not uh, pernicious. And that carbon dioxide is actually plant food and greens the planet. It's not a pollutant. There's a ton of evidence for all that. They don't give it, or very rarely give it. Uh, then there's the systemic racism propaganda, the, the critical race theory, the idea that one America today is still systemically racist, like it was 100 years ago when the Jim Crow laws were, were in effect. And very, very little evidence given on the other side, for instance, the enormous progress made by Black Americans in this country over, over the last 80 years, politically, how you see not just Black Americans elected to every prominent national office, but elected to the U.S. Senate from the former leading states of the Confederacy. I mean, Tim Scott is a senator from South Carolina, the, a very popular, the cradle of the Confederacy, the, you know, very, very rarely. Do they give any of the, the rebutting evidence? But the worst of all, it's not just the claim that America is systemically racist. It's the claim that white people are inveterately, inherently racist. That's like hardwired into our nature. Uh, that's just a pure, evil, hateful, racist claim. And that's the essence of racism. You know, your moral character is dictated by your race. It's not open to your choice. That's a pure racist claim. They indoctrinate the kids with that. Very little rebutting evidence uh, in, in most cases. Then there's the sexualization of the kids, this bizarre idea that you know, uh, there are dozens of genders, we could choose whatever gender we want, and five and six and seven-year-old kids should be encouraged to choose whatever gender they want. And of course, one of the results of that is Males who identify as females, of course, then must be allowed to uh, use ladies' bathrooms, shower in women's locker rooms, uh, compete in women's sports, you know, and, uh, you know, things like that. It's, it's sheer insanity. Nothing could be more obvious than that gender is hardwired, you know, by nature before birth. It's not a social construct. It's not created by society. We don't get to choose our gender. But the, the, the goal here, first of all, you, you're going to teach, that's not teach, you're going to indoctrinate little kids with this. First of all, what it does, it confuses them terribly. They could see what gender they are, but now authority figures are telling them, no, no, no. You know, social belief and choice supersedes the laws of nature. So you're confusing the kids terribly. But I think the main point here is they're grooming the kids with, that, with, the, with the mentality that your life doesn't belong to, to your parents your life belongs to the state.
Now, the collectivist or communist mentality has always been, as an adult, your life doesn't belong to you, belongs to the state, in contrast to the American founders, that your life belongs to you, not, not to the state, and the government exists to protect your inalienable rights. They're teaching the kids now five, six, seven years old, your life belongs to the state. Now, in a rational society, a minor child, the life belongs to the parents. The parents have to take care of the child. And then when the kid's an adult, uh, his or her life belongs to, to him or the communist mentality now is we're going to breed these kids and condition them at, at the earliest age that your life belongs to the state. This, this is pure communist indoctrination and, and, it's, and, and it's terrifying. So uh, I can go on with this, but and I know we wanted to discuss some of the some of the solutions to the problems. Right. Exactly. That was just what I was going to ask. If you, you know, this is incredibly interesting. People need to get the book. This is what we've been talking about for years and years and years and years and years. And if we don't want to repeat it, we ought to learn about it, which is learning history. So um, I'd like to know uh, what solutions you think we can have and what we can do about it. Yeah, thank you, Karen. Uh, yeah, the title of my new book is, you know, if, if, if a lot of people remember Rudolf Lesch, 1955's book, famous book, Why Johnny Can't Read. Well, here we are, you know, Many years later, the title of my book is Why Johnny Still Can't Read or Write or Understand Math and What We Could Do About It. So the whole first half of the book is about how we got into this mess, like I've just been saying. And the whole second half of the book is how, how are we going to resolve this? And I think uh, a prelude to that is the good news here is a lot of parents are recognizing that one good thing that came out of the pandemic, a lot of parents recognize how terrible the schools are and they're up in arms. They're clamoring at school board meetings and so on. Uh, you know, they want academic education, not indoctrination. That's the good news. The bad news is the parents need to realize the government schools are irredeemable. They cannot be changed, altered, or reformed. E.D. Hirsch in the 1990s, who's a professor at UVA, uh, Hirsch wrote a really good book, The Schools We Need and Why We Don't Have Them. And he called the school system an impregnable fortress. That's exactly right. It cannot be changed. It will not be changed. You're wasting your time trying to change it. The, the first step towards improving education in this country is that parents need to pull the kids out of the government schools. Here's what I do with my daughter when she was little. She was like two. You know, we go to the park and we play and everything. And then as part of a, you know playing and having fun, we go to the library or the bookstore and, you know, the, the, the children's section. And I have her pick out a book. And uh, usually it was some, you know, she was two years old. So it was usually some goofy story about dogs that could fly or, you know, uh, kittens who thought the full moon was a bowl of milk. The point is, she was interested. You want the kid to pick out the book because you, you want the child to learn that books are fun. And so I'd read to her and, you know, the child learns then that, that reading is fun. And then the kid's motivated. She or he, as the case may be you know, wants to learn how to read. So not to depend on mom or dad or teachers to read to her or him. And at four years old, five at the, at the latest, you don't have to wait till six. Uh, you could use systematic phonics and teach the child to read. By four or five, the child could be reading effectively. And that opens up the whole world of knowledge to the child for the rest of his or her life. The, he, the kid could be reading and, and, and learning, could be a, could be a lifetime uh, learner. And every parent could do this. Every parent could teach the kids, one, that reading is fun, and two, 
uh, use phonics to teach the kid to read effectively. That's one thing all parents could do. Also, so homeschooling. Now, homeschooling is, uh, there's, a, there's so many resources available online for, you know, for, for parents, for parents who, who homeschool. And uh, your parents don't necessarily have to do this by themselves. There's, you know, there's homeschool co-ops, for example, where parents get together, they pool their resources. This is more difficult in some states than in others, because in the real leftist states, they don't want the kids homeschooled. And so they, 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 they militate against parents pooling their resources. You know, in a, in a homeschool co-op, for example, you know, one, one mom is an MD and she, uh, you know, she teaches science or biology to the kids. Another, another kid's parent is an engineer and he teaches, you know, mathematics to the kids. One, you know, one parent is a really strong reader and he or she teaches literature to the kids. You pull your, your resources. Furthermore, you know, you the, the most fundamental, I teach college and a lot of college professors, they're real arrogant. You know, we teach higher education and, and so on. Um, the truth is elementary ed is by far the most important uh, part of, of schooling, it's or even preschool, because this lays the foundation. And there's so many books available on Amazon in the library for the parents. You know, the, the For Dummies series is one example. Elementary books on math, science, or, you know, history that you could get, read, uh, become, become proficient in these subjects, and then teach five, six, seven-year-old children the fundamentals, which they are not getting for the most part in the government school system. It's not that hard. You know, you could start over the summer, read these beginners books, and then teach the, teach the young children yourself. Now, when the states that allow homeschool co-ops, it becomes much easier because the parents could pool their resources uh, off and often do. There's a ton of material on, online in, in my book. I said any number of websites that I, you know, I reference for the, the parents could use it to get resources. Then there's one, then there's the, I think there's the most exciting development in education in many years is what's, is what's known as the micro schools and the micro school revolution.com is a, is a good website on this. And the micro schools are, are this, a lot of teachers, you know, you know, there are still some really good classroom teachers in the government school system who have this funny idea that they really want to educate the kids. They want to use phonics to teach reading. They want to teach American history. They don't want to use Howard Zinn's book, you know, in American history courses, you know, People's History of the United States, which is pure communist propaganda. They actually want to teach American history and so forth. Uh, some of these teachers are opting out of the school system and with uh, a small number of parents starting what's known as a micro school, which is really just a small community school. You know, one, one set of parents has a, you know, a, a rec room in their basement. They set up a little classroom. You have five or six kids, start out with five or six kids and a teacher, you know, usually, sometimes a man, usually a woman. You know, it brings back the old school marm, one room. It's the return of the one room schoolhouse. And, and the, there's a dedicated teachers who really want to teach. And of course the parents are paying them. So they, they have to be responsive. Uh, to the parents. You know, the parents generally want academic education. They expect the teacher to teach academics and she's, you know, she's got to respond. Well, he has the case maybe he's got to respond to that. Uh, the micro school has become so popular in recent years that even Forbes, which is a business magazine, had, a, had an article on this a year, a year or so ago. And it's, it's often referred to as the return of the one room schoolhouse. And I think this is going to be a big part 
of, of the Renaissance in, a, in American schooling. So you look, if you're in, if you, if you have uh, a parent have kids in the schools and you're disgruntled, uh, some of the teachers are too. See if you can find a teacher who wants to opt out and start, you know, and start her own school. Now, with the homeschool co-ops, like I said, the left in the in the you know in the conservative areas, that's not a problem. The leftist areas, they don't they, there's there's sometimes laws against parents pooling their resources, so you need to check the laws. But with the micro schools, they can't stop a, a, a teacher, somebody who's a certified teacher, from starting her own school. Well, his there's there's no way currently that they could stop that. A friend of mine started a micro school in Massachusetts of all places, you know, the bluest of, of the blue Atlas Academy in uh, outside Lowell, Massachusetts. If, if you're a certified teacher, you could start your own school and no matter how leftist the state is, they currently cannot stop you. So you can talk to the teachers and see if uh, there are some who are as disgruntled as you are and want to opt out of the, the school system. Then another thing that we could do to really improve education in this country. And this also, uh, uh, oh, by the way, I should, I should say, uh, homeschooling has really starting to grow uh, after, after the pandemic, as, as more and more parents saw what, what's going on in the, in the school system. And you know, you know what, the dem- what, I've, what I've read in multiple sources is the demographic that's leading the way in pulling their kids out of the government schools and homeschooling them are Black Americans. And that's a really good sign. Because the schools in, in, in a number of the black urban neighborhoods are just terrible. And it's great to see, you know, black American parents recognize that, pull their kids out of the schools and, you know, and, and, and teach them at home. But I was, I was about to talk about tutoring. Tutoring, this, this also uh, started to increase after the pandemic. And that is, and I'm a tutor. And, and think about this, because one problem of many in the government schools is, is teacher training. The teachers overwhelmingly are forced into education majors. You know, so they're, they're taking how to teach classes rather than what to teach classes. There's very little content uh, and there's more about method. Now, I'll give you an anecdote here. About 20 years ago, Cliff Notes hired me to write the cliff notes for three Iron Rand titles for Anthem, The Fountainhead, and Alice Shrug. And, um, you know, cliff notes are study guides for, the, for these great literary works. And the, the general editor at Cliff Notes told me that when they started out circa 1950s, 1960s, their main demographic was high school and college kids. Uh, but 40 years later, by 2000, a lot had changed. By then, he said their, their main demographic was high school English teachers who so once in a while, are assigned to teach, uh, you know, a serious novel that they had never read when they were in college, and or worse, didn't understand it, and so they had to use the cliff notes to be able to teach, you know, uh, a tale of two cities or Jane Eyre or or the Scarlet Letter or or what or whatever it is. So the reason for that is the teachers are taking education courses. The English teachers are taking education courses, not English or literature courses. The okay. math. The future math teachers are taking education courses, not math courses. They don't know that much of their own of the content that they're assigned to teach is the is the takeaway. Andy, now, this is such an incredibly interesting conversation. However, unfortunately, we're going to run out of time. Uh, Chris, tell everyone where they can find you. Find Andy. 
we go. Andy's book is called Why Johnny Still Can't Read or Write or Understand Math. It's available on Amazon. Our website at the Anti-Communism Action Team is spiderandthefly.com with hyphens between the words. And quickly, I want to let your audience know that we have a video on there called Producing Auto Warm Beers, which traces the entire history of the injection of communist ideas into uh, the American public education system. So I'll turn it back to you, Karen. I'm so sorry that we had to cut time short, but hopefully you will be able to come back again. If we don't get a handle on education, we might as well just turn around and jump in the garbage because that's where we're going to be. You have been listening to Karen Schoen. This is the prism of America's education brought to you on the America Out Loud talk radio network with my wonderful sponsor, the Florida Citizens Alliance. Join us, folks. We'll be right back. You wouldn't go a day without brushing your teeth or washing your hands. What about washing your nose? I mean, your nose does filter the air you breathe, air loaded with bacteria, viruses, and irritants. Make nasal hygiene part of your routine with Clear. No messy bottles to fill, no drowning sensation. Clear is a natural drug-free saline with the added benefit of xylitol which blocks bacterial and viral adhesion. Available in stores and online at clear.com. That is X-L-E-A-R.com. While many things we hear are lies, we know one thing is true. Viruses exist and people get sick. Look, there's no guaranteed way to keep from getting sick, but there is a way to reduce your chances. Cofix Rx, the original povidone iodine-based antiviral nasal spray that you hear Dr. McCullough talking about, provides an additional invisible layer of protection from colds, flu, coronaviruses, and more. Click the banner ad on americaoutloud.com and use promo code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Stay protected with Cofix Rx. Here on America Out Loud, we emphasize optimal health, and air is the most essential element for life. The average person inhales over 35 pounds of air every day. Yet we seldom think about how to rid the air of pathogens swiftly and safely when we need to. The Genesis Fogger Plus HOCL is the only way to quickly and naturally restore air to its optimal condition. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. America Outloud beats to the pulse of our nation. We know when you're angry, you're troubled, confused, glad, and thankful. Well, we know you because we are you. AmericaOutloud.com. Join us as we explore the most important issues of our time. America Outloud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. Welcome back, everyone. Hope your break was terrific. And make sure you did not drink any carbonated soda. Remember what we were talking about the first round. No more carbonated drinks. Who wants to, first of all, poison ourselves? And second of all, destroy the planet with all that carbon that we're putting in the air. Of course, they don't tell you, as Dr. Andy said, plants love carbon dioxide and during a time when carbon dioxide is high, the plants thrive and when the plants thrive, food is plentiful and that's what we should be striving for. However, we all know what this crowd is all about and the goal of 
today and what we're doing is talking about solutions. It is fun and dandy to continually cite the problem. We already know the problems. It is time to know what we can do about it and then start doing. Chris, I know that you have some exciting information, which was really important. So you want to share that with everyone. Sure. Let me begin by telling your audience, in terms of seeing problems and doing something about them, I have a national network. We have a number of different working groups, and I formed the National Rhino Hunt Team uh, early in last year because I kept seeing the same problem all over the country. People would tell me uh, every corner of the country that, that their local Republican Party was in the hands of the establishment. The establishment had nothing but disdain for the grassroots conservatives in the Republican Party. And to Karen being a member of the team and myself, we have uh, another member of the team, Peggy Hutt, who's going to be sharing some information with us about how she's building a campaign uh, platform for campaigns out where she is in Washington state. But before we get to that, I'd like to tell your audience that we do have a web page where you can you know, follow our work. The website is called liberato.us, L-I-B as in boy, E-R-A-T as in Tom, O.us, liberato.us. That's my personal website. And we have current events about uh, household names, names you would recognize like uh, Mitt Romney and uh, Mitch McConnell. And we, we track the, the rhino news on people like that. We also have uh, developed over the last nine or 10 months, uh, pages and pages of methodologies that people can use in their localities to fight the uh, re establishment Republicans in their local Republican party. We do have speakers available to explain our methodologies. So we do have that. And we also engage in confrontations. So for example, uh, we challenged the Minnesota GOP as to why they didn't do anything when Project Veritas, James O'Keefe, um, created a, an entire uh, series of videos about voter for election fraud in Elon Omar's district and how it was being bought and paid for by forces friendly to Elon Omar. So that was one of our confrontations. And our latest project is to bring financial transparency to the Republican National Committee, the RNC. Now, why would, did we do that? Well, shortly before Christmas, there um, uh, it was reported that there were financial excesses at the RNC that they were spending uh, donor money on private jets, limousines, resorts, Broadway shows, retreats for senior staff members in luxury hotels. They spent $7,000 on cupcakes for their office. They spent another $7,000 on candles. They, they like to give out $400 loafers. Now, some of this is for donors, entertaining donors, so that the money keeps flowing. But there, are, there were plenty of expenses reported that didn't have anything to do with donors. So it's clearly run amok. It's clearly out of control. Our latest project is to try to do something about that. We came up with a candidate pledge. There are three candidates for running for RNC chair. One is the current chair, Rona McDaniel. Another is Harmeet Dillon. And the third is Mike Lindell, Mike Lindell the My Pillow guy. So we came up with a pledge, and the pledge goes like this, and that we sent to all three. I pledge, if elected chair of the RNC, to bring full and complete fiscal transparency to the organization, including the distribution of statements of revenue, expenses, and donations on a quarterly basis to all RNC committee members and local GOP chairs. And we put in local GOP chairs because 
if they if they do adopt this, then we have some chance of getting this information down to the grassroots. So that's the pledge. And the exciting news you referred to at the outset, Karen, is that Mike Lindell has signed the pledge. So, Karen, uh, I'll see if you have any comment on that before we go on. Oh, I, I am so excited. I think that is absolutely wonderful. Finally, more and more information is getting out about what the RNC did, what they were doing, and how they fell asleep at the wheel and cost the Republicans a huge victory in the last election. Now, I'd like to introduce Peggy Hutt. She's a member of the National Rhino Hunt team with Karen and me. As a grassroots conservative Republican, she fights the rhinos in Washington state. She's an old hand at this. She's been at it for years, uh, working inside the party. And um, so we're going to hear from her tonight about the platform she's creating uh, to uh, have a ready-made campaign platform ready for candidates. But before we get to that, uh, Peggy, do you, do you have any comment on the uh, RNC financial uh, responsibility pledge that we put out. My comment is, well, at least uh, we are thankful that Mike Lindell has responded and we are very hopeful to hear from the other two. Amen to that. So go ahead, Peggy, tell us about uh, what you're doing in Washington State uh, to build a platform for uh, campaigns. Well, it's a little it's a little bit unorthodox uh, to a certain uh, certain de degree. The first thing is it goes back to what Karen said with fixing the problem. Uh, for for the 10 years that I've been on the inside of the par party, we have discovered actually a number of places that can always be improved upon. And at this point, I have decided that most of those areas would be better done outside the party structure by the people, by we the people that care about this stuff. So most parties have what they call a campaign in a box. It's a little box of information that they hand up to candidates. Whoopie do. Okay, what we have seen... Over the, over the years is the fact that campaigns are a major money maker inside all party structures, including the RNC. But how have that machinery helped the candidates that you and I would like to see elected? Very little, if, if to zero. What we're doing is creating campaign teams. You know, and this requires really no big money campaign consultant. Each county should have a team and it's the core team I'm talking about. And it's approximately five people at minimum. You have a campaign manager, a, a treasurer, a social media person, a volunteer coordinator. And I know there's a few others in there that I forgot to, to mention, but basically the idea is to train up these teams and having a couple of these teams in your local area one of the main reasons is if there happens to be a personality uh, conflict somewhere, you could switch people from one team to the other team. And I've hosted a campaign school here in 2016, which is how I got kind of started in this. But if the people and the grassroots are operating their own teams and we start by once you're trained kind of in the schoolwork area of, of campaigning, then to take it out in the field and let's let's do the uh, out in the field training with some of the lower level races, such as your school board races, your port commissioner races, your fire commissioner, your parks departments. Those are all lower level. And at that point, these these races are usually a much smaller district or a smaller group of registered voters in a particular area. Therefore, one team could probably take on two, maybe three 
of these types of campaigns in their general area. What's going to happen after that, when we win these races, because they will be easy to win with the passion and the knowledge, the proper knowledge of a team going out instead of a party maintained team, which is, I say, use that loosely, we find here in Washington that the state party hires people from um, outside our state to run our own campaigns. And I'm like, what the heck? There's got to be a better way to do this. Not only that, now we can be vetting our own candidates, kind of knowing who does the grassroots really leaning towards in these races and get behind our own people. And we could probably do it for at least 50% less than what the big money and what the state and county parties are used to paying for this. And some of these poor candidates that really can't even afford some of this big money stuff. The other thing we find is kind of a way of getting the big money out of it. And one of the things I have learned over the years by participating in campaigns, um, our House caucuses and Senate caucus both have their own committees for raising money to support candidates. But that money comes at a cost. They will say, we'll give your campaign ten dollars or $20,000. Oh, yay. But by the time you pay their consultant, their printers, their campaign managers, and all the other things that come with this, if you're lucky, you end up with two grand or three grand of funds that you can use yourself for your own campaign because the machinery, the campaign machinery is operating everything and it's a big money maker. So this, so that's basically why I'm doing this. And, you know, many reasons we want to win. We want to cut out the money and we want to do it right. Wow. That's really something. I have questions, but I'll wait for Karen to see if she has any comments. Oh, I think that's very powerful, um, Peggy. And you're absolutely right. This is all about the money. That's all they ever care about, the money and the power. If we could get away taking away the money, that's a, that's a home run in itself. So uh, kudos to you. This is really terrific. What a great role model. Thank you, Karen. Well, my first question is, uh, how do you find experienced people? And the reason I ask that is because in 2012, I volunteered on a campaign for a congressional candidate here where I live in Virginia. This person was new to politics, had a big, powerful job in Washington, D.C., but across the river, really knew nothing about Virginia politics, brought in a campaign manager who was brand new. He did okay, but uh, I could see where experience could make a difference. So where do you find experienced people? Well, like anything, uh, Chris, we start by by asking those that are interested and we put them through the campaign school. I have a, in fact, you have access to the first fellow that I brought in in 2016. He's out of Florida. He was originally from Washington and his name is Mark Montini. So I, I brought him out here with another organization. We partnered on it and I, you know, it was a two and a half day class in a, in a day and a half. Um, and so he allow, allowed me to record it for the the attendees so the thing would be to bring people through a training course and then throughout the process keep them enhanced such as uh, attorneys and, and medical personnel they have to take a continuing education a cle uh, you know once a year or something then leadership institute is another great example of where we can they have many free videos but they also have a four-day amazing campaign school so it would be to continue to educate and bring in, if as we get better, and the people that want to stay and enjoy this, is to then send them to the Leadership Institute or bring Leadership Institute out this way and do some more training and just keep that circle going. And that, that way you have your own, you're building your own teams in your own local area. 
number one. And, you know, on your own state, I'm hoping to spread this around the state, but but the grassroots in each area knows their issues. They know their area and they know how to travel their area, you know, and so that's how I do it. Well, I'm glad you're hooked up with Leadership Institute because um, that is one thing they do very well. It's their campaign school. I sat in on a like a two hour session. And the thing that's distinguishing about it is that it's taught by um, former candidates. So people who've been through this themselves are, are the instructors. So I thought that was really good. My, my next question is, uh, have you used this platform yet? Have you put it into operation? No, we haven't. We are still working, working it out. I'm still finding the volunteers and the people around the state. A big reason for that was the COVID shutdown, which was, you know, fall, was at the same time of the 2020 election. I was very, very busy. Uh, but and the nonprofit that um, I'm using that I'm working with through this, I happen to be a board member. We are gearing back up now. It's a part of our organization. And you mentioned that not using the establishment's suite of uh, experts like the printer and, and the other people you mentioned, the consultants, the campaign manager, that you can save 50 percent on a campaign. Can you give us uh, one or two concrete examples of, of the money differential? for uh, hiring these professionals? Don't really have those specifics in front of me, but I know that people pay big money for these consultants. And I also know, like in this state, the, a number of the campaigns I've worked for, some of these consultants, and a lot of them are like out of California. We don't even see these people in the state. So a phone call relationship, I mean, they might come on occasion, but once again, if we're running our local campaigns through local grassroots efforts, why is there a need for them? I mean, that first a charge I could see that we really don't even need to be paying. The consultants would be the people that have lived here, that have participated in politics or that have been trained to do the campaign schools. They're going to know better about what they need. We don't need to be paying some consultant from another state to tell us what we need. And my next question is, I know you've been keeping this under wraps up to this point, but, uh, but now that it's starting to make it public, have you gotten any pushback from the establishment Republicans in your area? No, this will be the first time they've heard it because I've only shared it with my grassroots friends. Have you anticipated? Have you thought about what they might try to do? Like we have our Rhino Hunt team meetings. We have a woman from uh, South Carolina and they tried a few things in their area, not about campaigns, but just in general, in their Republican meetings, establishment found ways to fight back. To a certain degree, um, of course, that's always an, an active uh, you know, part of the scenery, but there's strength in numbers and understanding. And especially in today's environment, one of the things I envision is the fact that once we get our first group um, to do to do the lower level races, which for Washington State is this year. So we need to jump on this. But when we have a winning streak, let's say that one team takes on you know, two school board races and a poor commissioner. And let's just say we at least win the two school board races. Then we have a track record. Next year is, you know, the larger races. So now we can actually start charging because I figured why charge for these lower level races when we're just out there for our first time getting our feet wet in the field. So, you know, to, is to give it away. And your school board races are closed, local. The only thing we may ask would be to help with gas, if need, gas coffee and a pizza which is, you know, your standard uh, campaign food. So, you know, it, it wouldn't cost us a lot of money to do those races anyway. So the following year, my assumption is a lot of candidates will start seeking us out because people will talk. We will be talking about the races that we won. And if we can build a couple of 
teams in other areas, you know, the thing is once you're a commodity or once you're sought after, you know, I can really care less. We'll be our own nonprofit. I won't care about um, Joe Schmo, minority leader, what have to say, really, because we're winning and people will go, we are winning. I'm really not that concerned about their pushback, tell you the truth. All right. Good to hear. Okay, Karen, um, let's go back to you, see if you have any. No, I am very excited. I think this is a really, really good plan. And that's part of part of the problem is that they have a really good procedure. And if we would follow their procedure, we would do really great, but we don't do that. But now Peggy and your group, that's, you know, you're, you're, you're following, they view election as 12 months out of the year, every single year, every single day. And we don't do that. We say, oh, six months out, then you can declare. And, you know, that's not the way it works, You, you especially if you're trying to develop a name. So I think this is a great start. Thank you, Karen. We'll keep you posted. Please do. Yes. Come back and <laughs> let us know how it's going. And you're well, absolutely see. right. The more that you have as a, um, a track record, the higher a commodity you will become. And that's the plan. Winning will be our name. I don't think people really understand the depth of this. Woke corporations. I am very concerned, especially with digital currency, that because their ability to track us. So I'd like to talk about the woke corporations, what we can do. And that's where the boycott was coming in, because it's time that we stop feeding the woke corporations. Um, before we turn to that, which is my personal commentary that I do every day, I call it the Daily Skirmish. It's also on liberato.us. Let's see if Peggy has any final words she wants to say about the Rhino Hunt team, uh, her campaign platform, or the RNC. As far as the RNC, all we could do is pray and hope um, for uh, the best possible outcome. Of course, everyone in the country at this current time is yelling for new leadership at all levels of our party or the Republican Party. And I think that is um, an honest and truthful cry, you know, from the people. So that would be my statement for the RNC. As far as my campaign uh, school strategy, um, a lot of people are very excited. I'm excited to finally get it moving. And um, the more that, you know, we we talk about it and um, open this up as well for other people's ideas because I always believe that um, more the people that want to be involved uh, that have input you you always will find the, the personal skill levels of those people to enhance the product and I don't you know um, it's not just about what I think it should be but I, I always enjoy when people brainstorm together so that is another part of this because it is new it is new and we want to brief and debrief as, as throughout each stage of this process and you know what did we do well what did we what did we mess up on what should we improve upon so that each year we get better and better and and become the standard for running winning campaigns oh what a what a blessing it's been to be invited to be a member of our national rhino hunt team um, I have enjoyed it. Um, a lot of great information. Um, it's nice to be associated with some of the old uh, Tea Party members um, and meet new people. And um, once again, you know, that's the brainstorming inside and the, the community that, that uh, Chris has built for us to share and uh, lift each other up and, and just, uh, you know, target these people that have brought uh, helped bring our country down. So well, I'm, I'm excited to be here. 
like your campaign effort, we are, are in, in, embarked on a process of continuous improvement also. So we hope to get better and better over time as well. So please stick around. I'm going to uh, get into my uh, commentary now, and, and there may be time at the end for uh, Peggy uh, for you to comment. So this goes like woke corporations, game on. Go woke, go broke, the saying goes. Today's news brings the story the Texas Attorney General stopped Citigroup from underwriting municipal bond offerings in the state after finding Citigroup discriminated against the firearms sector. This follows recent actions by states against BlackRock for skewing its investments in favor of left-wing political priorities like climate change and racial justice. One example of that is Florida pulling $2 billion in state pension assets from BlackRock last month. Then there's the case of Bed Bath & Beyond, which had to close 150 stores and is looking at bankruptcy after going woke and taking Mike Lindell's MyPillow products off its shelves. Conservatives stopped shopping there, me included, and bought from Mike Lindell directly instead. What kind of business model is it to alienate, to alienate half the country? Not smart. Bed Bath & Beyond should be a cautionary tale to companies more recently going woke. Casual Shoemaker Crocs sponsors child drag shows with child performers. I object. Drag shows are adult entertainment. Mars issued all-female M&M bags featuring les a lesbian couple and uh, a fat-positive uh, candies. What on earth for? Yes, I always get my politics from the candy aisle, don't you? General Motors funds a transgender organization that puts books promoting transgenderism in kindergarten and elementary school classrooms. J.P. Morgan Chase closed the account of a religious freedom group and demanded a list of the group's donors to reinstate the account, all the while denying these steps were being taken because of the organization's beliefs. Former Kansas Republican Governor Sam Brownback, the founder of the group, said he's hearing the same thing from other groups and is calling on state attorneys general to investigate. Good. <laughs> How can you get a business license to serve the public, then turn around and refuse to serve half the public? Why is that allowed? Other people are fighting back against the corporate tyrants. Social media users unleashed a firestorm of criticism against makeup retailer Ulta for inviting, inviting a biological male transgender to discuss all things girlhood on its podcast. Girlhood isn't something you can buy from Ulta, one post read. A beauty brand gaslighting the customers, another said. Never shopping at Ulta again, went a third. Heads up, Crocs. A conservative group in Chattanooga circulated a petition demanding an, ed, an, an end to drag shows for kids. A nature center in Knoxville, a civic center in Jackson, and a restaurant and bar in Chattanooga all canceled their events. Red Balloon, a conservative-leaning job board, has employers sign a pledge not to discriminate against workers' personal beliefs in the workplace. Over 2,000 employees, uh, I'm sorry, employers, have signed so far. Red Balloon also advises workers on how to assert their free speech rights, opt out of training that violates their beliefs, and organize coworkers to fight retaliation. If you're a CEO and thinking about taking your company woke, don't expect any sympathy when it blows up in your face. Kroger stopped carrying my pillow and pulled pro-American products from its shelves. The company ran into flack from re regulators when it announced a proposed merger with Albertsons. Senator Tom Cotton told Kroger's woke CEO in a congressional hearing, if they silence conservatives and center-right voters across the country, if they discriminate against them in their company, they probably shouldn't come and ask Republican senators to carry the, the water for them whenever their Democratic friends want to regulate them or block their mergers. I'm sorry that's happening to you. Best of luck, Cotton said. Best of luck, Bed Bath & Beyond. Best of luck, Kroger and & Crocs and BlackRock and Citigroup. 
we don't need you. We have alternatives. Just remember that. And that is the name of the game because that's what they are most afraid of. And that is called competition, a.k.a. alternatives. Don't allow them to take your choices away. And that's exactly what they want to do. Oh, that was a great article, Chris. I, I really enjoyed it. Unfortunately, um, we're going to run out of time and that's never good. So how about if you tell everyone where they can find you and what you're planning on next? Again, the website for the National Rhino Hunt team is liberato.us. L-I-B is in boy, E-R-A-T is in Tom, O.us. My daily commentary is on there called The Daily Skirmish. Um, and that's um, uh, the, if you want to write me, the, there's a contact email on the website, tips at liberato.us. And as far as what I've got coming up next, I'm thinking about ways, thought for a long time, we don't win unless we have an NBC where people go by default for their news by the tens of millions. And I'm thinking about ways to uh, get bigger megaphones on the right. So I'll leave it there. I'll be cryptic about it for now, but uh, that's what I'm going to be working on this year. Communication is the name of the game. And he who owns the communication uh, owns the narrative. And that's what we have to be working on. So Peggy, I thank you so much for sharing what you're doing. I think it's fantastic. And I hope you'll come back and let us know. And Chris, of course, uh, the people that you work with are incredible and it's always wonderful to hear what real people that's us guys you know the grassroots the forgotten man and woman well we're not going to be forgotten anymore we are going to make an impact and as chris said we have alternatives so we have to use them thank you all for joining me today uh this has been been a pleasure as always. This is Karen Schoen. You're listening to the Prism of America's Education, brought to you on the America Out Loud Talk Radio Network with my wonderful sponsor, the Florida Citizens Alliance, whom, by the way, is working on a project that I will be sharing with you as soon as it's complete, but it is regarding one-room schoolhouses. That's, you want your kids to learn? That's the way that they will be able to learn. Give them real truthful documents to read, teach them how to read, teach them how to write, teach them how to do math, and you have a home run with your child. But always be there for them because family is the most important. Thank you all for listening. Have a wonderful week. See you again next week. But I'll